Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that Jesus would be big for his glory. And in his name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I just want to say thank you for singing. Praise to our King. It is a privilege and an honor to sing alongside of you each and every week. Our God is worthy. Amen. Of all praise and honor and glory and blessing. I encourage you to open your copies of the scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me just say to you, Joanna, my wife, sends her greetings to you. She and our daughters are in Ohio this morning. I can't figure out why they're there. Um, Actually, I know why they're there. They're visiting our grandson, Wesley, and he just happens to be living with our daughter and son-in-law, all right? And so they're visiting our daughter and son-in-law as well, but um, I wish I could be there with them, but this is where God has me this morning. I love being able to open God's Word to you, and I hope and pray that during these first seven chapters of Mark's Gospel that that, that the text of, of Scripture in Mark's gospel has been as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. Is there any greater joy that we could have than following Jesus around and watching and hearing as he comes to be our Savior and to demonstrate that he possesses all, all power and all authority in both heaven and on earth, and he's going to use that power. That power will culminate in Jesus laying down his life for us and then rising again from the dead for us. And we're getting a picture of that, a preview of that in every page of Mark's gospel leading up to the cross and to the tomb of Jesus. What a joy it is to unpack the life of Jesus as he lives his life on purpose for us. Amen? Wow. The Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of all. Mark chapter 8. We're nearly halfway through Mark's gospel, and here's what we read in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. 
and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, aware of this conversation, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of our God. Now, if you're as old as I am, or older, then you will be familiar with the name Yogi Berra. Anybody remember Yogi Berra? Yogi Berra was a catcher for the New York Yankees who became a broadcaster. And Yogi Berra coined many phrases. They became known as Yogi-isms. And one of the phrases that Yogi Berra coined was this, it's deja vu all over again. Now think about that. You'll catch on sometime today, all right? It's deja vu all over again. And that's really Mark chapter 8. I mean, we've already had Jesus feeding a large crowd back in Mark chapter 6. He fed 5,000 men. And so we need to ask right up front here, right at the beginning, why is this sequel miracle here? And it's a question we have to consider because so many Bible critics claim that Mark's account here in Mark chapter 8 is really the same miracle from Mark 6. They say that Mark is confused. That he's received a lot of information and he doesn't know how to put it all together. And so really this is the same miracle. And so he gets all the numbers mixed up. Mark is a moron. There's 5,000 men back in chapter 6. There's 4,000 people here in Mark chapter 8. There's five loaves and two fish back there. There's seven loaves and a few fish here. You have 12 baskets full left over there. You have seven here. See all the contradictions? Mark is messed up. So how would you respond if someone at your workplace or someone in your family came to you and said, look, the Bible has errors and contradictions, and Mark doesn't know what he's saying or what he's doing. What would your response be? Here it is. Those aren't contradictions. Those are distinctions. Because this isn't the same miracle. In Mark 6, there's a crowd of 5,000 men on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Here, it's a crowd of 4,000 people on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. In Mark 6, you have the crowd being with Jesus all day. Here in Mark 8, the crowd has been with Jesus for three days. In fact, right here in verses 19 and 20, did you notice as we read the text this morning that Jesus refers to each miracle as a distinct event? And so Mark isn't confused. He isn't a moron. He isn't contradicting himself. There's no evidence here that the Bible contains errors. It's simply a similar miracle 
that Jesus does at two different times in two different places with two different groups of people. It's a repeat. It's a repeat miracle because it's teaching us an essential and important truth. It's verse 2 right here in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus looks over the 4,000-person crowd and he says to his disciples, I have compassion on these people. I feel for them. Down deep in my gut, they have a need, and I see it, I know it, and I'm going to do something about it. It's the very same truth that Mark highlighted back in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 34. When Jesus sees the great crowd, he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. So it's like Mark really wants us to get the big idea of this text. Jesus is the king of compassion. He is moved by compassion. He feels when he sees people in need and then he moves to meet that need. And that's a truth that Mark repeats because it's a truth we tend to forget. You wonder why God in his word repeats things? It's because we tend to forget things. Things like Jesus really is aware of our needs, that Jesus really does care for our needs, our ongoing everyday needs, all of them like the water bill. And when you have kids like we do who like to take long showers, that's a major issue. Christ cares about that. He cares about your house payment. He cares about the food that you need to survive. You see, we tend to see our lives as compartmentalized entities. Like Jesus, we know Jesus cares about our soul, you know, that inner spiritual part of me. But he really isn't all that interested in my physical needs like my job or my health or my finances. And Mark knows that we tend to think that. And so he's reminding us That the compassion of Jesus is true for all of life. All the way down to our most basic needs. Christ is, Mark is saying to us, Christ is the king of compassion. And as the king of compassion, he's the God of provision. That's the first point this morning. He's the God of provision. Do you believe that? Are you convinced of that? Or do you question that or doubt that? Because as this scene opens, there is a large crowd gathered around Jesus listening to him preach. Now remember, again, I just want to make sure we have this straight. We are in Gentile country here in these first ten verses. We're in the Decapolis. That's a region of of ten cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the people here, these Gentile people, they're they're taken with Jesus. They know what he can do. They, They know that he's just given new ears and a new tongue to a deaf mute. They remember hearing from that man back in Mark chapter 5, right there in their region, that man who was previously possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus cast those demons out of him. And that man went back home to the Decapolis on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee to tell his story. These people know what Jesus can do. 
But these people aren't just taken with what he can do. They're, they're captivated by what he's saying. They're on the edge of their seats, just like you are this morning. They're engaged. They're hanging on every word. They're drinking it all in. And they have been for th- three days straight. And they have no food. Now let me ask, anybody here ever gone an extended period of time without food? Okay, several of you, I just want, I want, I want to be open and honest with you, transparent with you, um, not me, not me, and by the way, that's not just something that's true of my past, I anticipate and expect that's going to be true of my future. I like food too much, steak, chocolate chip cookies, and then eight weeks ago or so, I discovered the vanilla shakes at Portillo's. Oh, man. I never had a shake like that. They're so incredibly fluffy. It's crazy. It's like ice cream and cotton candy are getting together for a carnival in your mouth. It's wow. Not these people. They've had nothing to eat. Because they're feeding their souls on the words of Jesus. So let me ask, do we desire the teaching of God's word like this? When the Bible is taught, our minds aren't on the clock or on our bellies. We're so captivated by and taken with God's word that in this moment, nothing else matters. The Bears don't matter. The Packers don't matter. The Chiefs don't matter. Nothing else matters because as we read in John 6 verse 68, these are the words of eternal life. These words aren't just saturated with eternal life. They don't just drip eternal life. These words give eternal life. Because they are sourced in the God of life. Now it isn't that our physical needs are unimportant. Because as a human being, I'm more than just a soul. I have a body too. I have a body with real needs, including the need for food. And Jesus shows us that he knows that and that he's acutely aware of that when he says to his disciples, come here. Hey guys, listen. I'm concerned for these people. I feel for them. I have compassion on them. They've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And some of them are a long way from home. I love that Jesus knows that little detail. And I love that Jesus shares with his disciples that little detail. He knows where we live. And so Jesus says, if I send them home, then some of them are going to faint along the way. They're not going to make it. And when we read this, we're like, you know, if I were there with Jesus as one of the disciples, you know what I'd say? I'd say, okay, Jesus, Yogi Berra said it's deja vu all over again. You've already fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Just do it again, Jesus. We've got seven loaves right here and a few small fish. It's not much, but with you, it's more than enough. You're the answer to these people's needs. That's probably what we're thinking 
we'd be saying, but that's not what the disciples are saying. Instead, they say, Jesus, why are you telling us about the problem? There's nothing we can do. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We're not from here. We don't know where the closest Mariano's is. What do you want us to do? But that's the point. There is nothing they can do to provide for the people's needs. But Jesus can and Jesus does when he has everyone sit down and he gives thanks to God and he breaks the seven loaves for the disciples and they then distribute the bread to the people. And then Jesus does the same thing with a few small fish and everybody eats. All 4,000 people from seven loaves and a few small fish. It's another creation miracle. And notice here what the text says. When Jesus provides, his people are satisfied. They were all satisfied. It's an interesting Greek word that Mark uses here. It's an emphatic word. It's an emphatic form for the word full. They're full. So when it's an emphatic form, it means they're more than full. So think this. Think Thanksgiving dinner kind of full. You know what that feels like? Think, think they're gorged. Think that it's, we've got 4,000 people here who are stuffed to the gills. But wait, that's not all. There's more. There's more than enough to satisfy everyone's need because there are seven baskets full left over. And all the people head home completely and totally satisfied with Jesus' provision. So let me ask, what's the point here? What's the point of this sequel miracle? Well, first... We have Jesus satisfying the hunger of a large crowd, not just in Jewish territory, but now in Gentile territory. And Mark is telling us that Jesus provides all the everyday needs for all his people everywhere. Not just the person across the Sea of Galilee from you, Not just the person across the auditorium from you or the person sitting next to you, but you. As his child, he provides all the everyday needs for all his people, including you. And then secondly, because this is a sequel miracle, this is a part two miracle, it's a reminder that Jesus does not just meet our needs once, but perpetually, again and again and again. Everything we need, every time. Do you believe that's true for you? Even in the little moments of life and the small stuff of life, Like when you've misplaced your car keys for the third time this week. Like when one of our kids is sick and we're up half the night. Or when you get that notice from the assessor's office informing you that your home value has increased significantly. Anybody get that? And because your home value has increased significantly, your tax bill will too. So what are those little moments 
and that small stuff for you. Where you tend to doubt that God is aware or that he cares or that he will provide. Philippians 4 verse 19 is God's promise to you. Claim it. Take it. Believe it. Here's what he says. My God shall supply all your needs. Every need of yours. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's his promise to you. So Jesus isn't somehow distantly aware of my needs and disconnected from them. He's intimately aware of my needs and provides for them. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Perpetually present tense. He is my personal, my personal shepherd. And so I shall never be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of that is everyday stuff for a sheep, for me. So even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know why? Because he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He even prepares a table. There's food in Psalm 23. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. Again, just an everyday need. My cup overflows more than enough. So I can say, surely, surely, goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of my Lord forever. Amen. This is our need meeting God. You know what Psalm 23 means? It means that as God's child, nothing about you is insignificant to him. Because he's the king of compassion, the God of provision, and the God of patience. That's point number two this morning. Patience. Compassion. Jesus demonstrating compassion through his patience, his long-suffering. Because Jesus and his disciples climb into a boat after Jesus feeds the 4,000 and they sail to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, if you were to go to the back of your Bibles, everybody know that there are in the back of your Bibles, at least in most Bibles, you're going to find a bunch of maps. Those maps are there for a reason. They're there just because the, the um, publisher needed to fill up the last few pages. Many times we learn theology through geography. But if you were to look for Dalmanutha on a Bible map, you're not going to find it more than likely because we're not exactly sure where it is. All we know is that it's on, and here's what's important, it's on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus feeding the 4,000 on the Gentile side gets back into a boat and, and sails back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he and the Pharisees dock their boat there, he is accosted by the Pharisees. They're back. 
those Jewish religious leaders, the theological bigwigs, they're back again. And Jesus engages them again. And he listens to them again. Even when they're there to test him. They ask Jesus. Actually, I think it's probably more they demand from Jesus that he give them a sign from heaven, that he do a miracle for just them. They're laying a trap for Jesus. Because back in Mark chapter 3, you remember back in Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees have already rendered their verdict on Jesus. They say that he isn't the Messiah, he's an imposter, he's a blasphemer. And so they aren't going to believe on him. They've already made their decision about him. They are going to kill him. And they've even gone public with their plans back in Mark chapters 3 and 4. And so they aren't here now to be convinced by Jesus. They're here to build their case against Jesus. This will be another nail in his coffin They believe that Jesus' miracle-working power is derived not from God up in heaven, but from the devil down in hell. And that's why they're demanding that Jesus give them a sign. Get this. You may want to underline this in your Bibles. Give them a sign from heaven. And if he does, if he steps into their trap, he'll be digging his own grave Because he'll once again be publicly claiming to receive his power from heaven. So come on, Jesus, I can hear them saying. Come on, Jesus, put your money where your mouth is. If you really are God, then do a miracle on command, a sign from above. Show us that you get your power from heaven and not from hell. Just do it, Jesus. Just do it. Either put up or shut up. And Jesus sighs visibly and deeply. This is one of those things that you read that you're like, there is no way this comes from anyone who wasn't an eyewitness to this account. Seeing Jesus visibly sigh. It's actually a Greek compound word that signifies the strongest emotion. So Jesus isn't just discouraged or disappointed or disgusted. He's literally blown away here by the unbelief of the Pharisees. Because they've been following Jesus around for months now. Remember, they're always lurking in the shadows. They've seen him make the lame walk and the deaf to hear and the blind to see. But their hearts are so hard against Jesus that they're blind to the truth of Jesus. And so even if Jesus gives them a million signs from heaven, it still won't be enough. It's a lot like our world today. Just poke around TikTok or Facebook or Instagram and you'll find skeptics who are still today saying the same thing. If God is real, all he has to do is prove it. All he has to do is show me and then I'll believe And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a college student. And you're really not sure about this Jesus thing. And frankly, if you were honest, the only reason you're here is that your parents require that of you. Or maybe you're in your 20s or your 30s. And you're here this morning checking this Jesus stuff out. 
They want you to know, you want to know what all the buzz is about, and you're pretty sure it's all bunk. I have a question for you. Would you believe on Jesus if you saw a dead person live again? Whose body had already been laid in a coffin? And they opened that door right over there this morning. And they walk down the aisle. And they plead with you to believe on Jesus. Would that be enough to convince you that Jesus is real? To see the dead live again? You know what the response would be? It would be, you know, I can't believe that the coroner pronounced that person dead. When obviously they were still alive. People would refuse to believe. They'd explain it away as a medical mistake or a publicity stunt or a religious hoax. Now, maybe you're thinking, Pastor Ken, wow, because that's really presumptuous of you to to know, to act like you know how people would respond. Okay, fair point. So what if I told you that I just paraphrased what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16? That even if somebody was released from hell and raised from the dead and came back and begged people to believe on Jesus, that people still wouldn't believe. You want more proof? What if I told you that after Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, these same Pharisees put a price out on Lazarus' head just to destroy the evidence? Now, what if I told you that when Jesus himself rose from the dead, the Pharisees claimed it was a hoax cooked up by the disciples who they say stole Jesus' body? Even dead people living and walking and preaching wouldn't be enough. So you want a sign? You want proof and evidence that Jesus is the real deal? Here it is. You want a miracle? You're holding it in your hands this morning. It's the Bible, the Word of God. Two million words, 40 authors written over 1,500 years in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Every word given by inspiration of God and preserved by God through millennia to tell you the story of Jesus this morning and to prove to you that He is all the sign you need. This is enough. But the Pharisees won't receive Jesus or believe Jesus. Instead, they'll reject Jesus yet again. Their hard-hearted unbelief has blinded their eyes to Jesus. And I can't help but notice how Mark is contrasting the reception Jesus receives from the Gentile crowd Versus the reception that Jesus receives from the Jewish Pharisees. And that's why Jesus says to them, I believe his heart is breaking. No sign will be given to this generation. You have all the information you need. You've seen me work. You've heard me speak. And still you don't believe on me. So how about you? Do you? What's your response to Jesus? You know why he came? He didn't come to to begin a revolution. He came to be a savior, the savior. 
Because 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save, to rescue, to redeem, to reconcile. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, to lay his life down on behalf of sinners everywhere, everyone who would trust and believe in him. This is our Jesus. How could you not respond to him? How could you not bow the knee to him and love him and believe him and receive him? This is Jesus, the one who comes to give everything for us. To receive sinners like us. So the question is, will we receive him and believe on him? And the good news this morning is that the one who goes to the cross on our behalf and bears our sins being laid upon him by a holy father. And Jesus absorbs the wrath of all those sins. Here's here's what we read in John 1 verse 12. That to as many as receive him, receive him. He gives the right, the privilege, the honor to become the children of God to everyone who believes on his name. Have you? Will you? This is Jesus, the Son of God. Patient with the Pharisees who are coming to trap him. To build a case against him so that they can kill him. And Jesus will die out of love for me and you. Would you trust him right now? And for all who have received Jesus and are believing on Jesus, the rest of this story is for us. The rest of the story shows how the king of compassion is patient with us, his followers, Because when Jesus and the disciples jump back into the boat after the interaction with the Pharisees, it isn't long before the conversation turns to food. I see this as more proof that the Bible is real and authentic because anytime I'm with a group of guys, that's what we talk about, food. See, the Bible is so true to life. When one of the disciples asks, who's got the bread from those seven baskets full we had left over? And everybody's looking around at everybody else, but nobody's saying anything. In fact, I think they are, they are murmuring this and they are discussing this under their breath quietly. Because notice in the text in verse 17 that Jesus, Mark says, and that Jesus aware of the conversation they're having. And so they're whispering this. Who's got the bread? And I can just imagine Peter piping up quietly and saying, well, it wasn't my job to bring the loaves. And somebody else saying, well, I did bring mine. And maybe you women are thinking, you know, this is what happens when a group of guys take a trip without a woman helping them pack. But let's remember something. Let's remember the one who is in the boat with them. The one they're forgetting about. The one who cares for them. The one who has provided more than enough bread for 5,000 and 4,000. He is more than capable of providing for 12. But the disciples fail to connect the dots 
between what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. What he's done for others, he will do for you. And that's why Jesus says to them, guys, listen up. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus, I love it. Jesus uses the bread they don't have as a picture, as an illustration, and specifically the yeast in that bread. Yeast is used in the Bible as a picture of evil. And if you've ever baked bread, you know that just a little bit of yeast will permeate the entire lump of dough. And so Jesus is warning the disciples here, about the evil that's beginning to permeate their hearts and blinding their eyes and darkening their minds. It's the evil of unbelief. It's something that every one of us as followers of Jesus needs to be aware of. That in spite of all we've seen from Jesus and heard from Jesus and everything we know about Jesus, that we won't connect the dots between who he is and what he's done and what we need. In the little moments and the small stuff of our lives. And that's dangerous. Which is why Jesus backs up his warning with eight rapid fire questions. I love the patience of Jesus here because he's not hitting them with accusations, he's probing their hearts and prodding their minds and and patiently overcoming their unbelief with questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I fed the 5,000, how many baskets full did you take up? And they say 12. And when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets full did you take up? And I think now sheepishly they say seven. And then Jesus asks them one final question. Do you not yet get it? Do we? It's Jesus hammering home the point that he's just as connected to our everyday life needs as he is to our eternal soul need. If he's willing and able to provide for our eternal life, he's willing and able then to provide for our everyday life. It's what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? In your everyday life, little moments And small stuff. Let me suggest two ways this morning that we can grow in trusting Jesus with our everyday needs in the little moments and the small stuff. Number one, trace the hand of God at work in your life and specifically in your past. It's what Jesus is telling the disciples to do here. Do do you not remember Are you not tracing my hand at work in the lives of others? And even, I fed you when I fed those 5,000 and 4,000. And you're not connecting the dots between what I've done and what you need now. Trace the hand of God at work in your past. Do you do that? 
Times when you've been in need and God has provided, maybe it was a financial need and God used an unexpected gift or he stretched, somehow stretched your paycheck to make ends meet. Maybe it was a health need or a work need or a family need and God kept his word to you again like he always has. So what do we do when God comes through? We do Psalm 105 verse 5, remember his marvelous works that he has done. And one way we can do that, just a very practical thing we can do between now and Thanksgiving, is to make a list. Write down each day one way that God has met your needs either on that day or sometime in the past. And after those 46 days between now and Thanksgiving, and some of you are like, you're panicking now, but after those 46 days, you'll have a list of 46 ways that on Thanksgiving Day you can thank God for, where he has proven to you that he's the king of compassion, that he keeps his word every time. And recalling and recording those evidences of his provision will help you to then, secondly, to cultivate a tender heart. Cultivate a tender heart. Listen carefully. As we learn in this text, a little bit like yeast, a little bit of hard-heartedness, a little bit of unbelief, a little bit of not taking God at his word can have devastating consequences, lifelong consequences. It can spread like wildfire through your life, just a little bit, through your family, through your church. My time is gone. I would love to tell you stories of men that I went to Bible college with. And some of them have stood behind pulpits like this and preached to people like you who no longer are preaching because they're no longer believing. You know how they got there? One step at a time. Just a little bit of unbelief A little bit of hard-heartedness, a little bit of not taking God at his word, and it spread like wildfire through their life, and the consequences are devastating. And that's why God says in Hebrews 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a danger for all of us, which is why God says next, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, God's antidote to our unbelief is the people we have sitting around us this morning. And so I say to us, Bethel, let's be a family to each other. Let's be involved and invested in one another's lives. Let's do life together. I mean, really do life together. Because unbelief thrives in isolation. Gathering together like we are this morning, getting getting together in small groups or for supper or coffee or God-appointed ways, to help you cultivate a tender heart so that even when the chips are down, you won't give in to unbelief. Instead, you'll be surrounded by people who love you, who will call you to believe what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 
verses 31 through 33, where he says, don't be anxious. Don't sweat the small stuff. Like what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. For the Gentiles, the unbelievers seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe Jesus. He will provide just like he does here in Mark 8 and just like he's done for you before. And it will be deja vu all over again. Because Christ is the King of compassion. Amen. Father, we need to hear what your word has said to us this morning. We are so prone to forgetting. We are so prone to not applying the truth of who you are and what you've done in and through your son, Jesus to our lives, where we live, where we work, where we struggle. And so I pray that by your Spirit this morning, you would apply the truth to our hearts. That we would not be settled, that we would not settle even for just a little bit of unbelief. That we would believe. you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone, I would plead with you right now, receive Him, trust Him, believe on Him. He came to die for sinners, to give, to provide, to save. Will you trust Him right now? And believer in Jesus, Let's apply what we know to be true to the everyday stuff, the little moments of everyday life. Jesus is the King of compassion. In his name I pray, amen.